0: Did you know that every year, property crimes like burglaries and package thefts spike over the holiday season? That's why there is no better time than now to invest in Safe. This week, SimpliSafe are giving Red Collar listeners 40% off their award-winning home security system. We love Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. This offer ends soon. Take 40% off at simplysafecom slash redcollar today. Go to simplysafecom slash redcollar. It was early in the morning on January 13th, 2019. Just after the Christmas holidays ended, in a small town called Celebration, Florida the community that was built by Walt Disney World. Celebration is located in Osceola County. It's about half an hour south of Orlando. In this sleepy little town, federal agents and local police officers had surrounded a home at 202 Reserve Place, a four-bedroom property with a white picket fence. This is a town that's billed as the happiest place on earth, but the agents had come to arrest Anthony Tote, who goes by Tony a 45-year-old physical therapist who had a practice in Connecticut. Tony had been charged with healthcare fraud, and he and his family had abruptly left their primary residence in Colchester, Connecticut, right before the holidays. Since then, the agents had been trying to reach Tony for weeks, but they hadn't had any luck, and his family couldn't find him either. In fact, family members got so concerned about Tony, his wife, 42-year-old Megan, and their three kids that they started putting postings on social media. Then on December 9th, a family member contacted law enforcement in Florida. She asked officers to do a welfare check on the house. She said she'd been told that the family had the flu and she hadn't heard from them in two days. Deputies did drive out to the house and respond that day, but they didn't see anything suspicious. Tony's family posted on social media again. They asked anyone who had seen Tony, Megan, or the kids to reach out. On the family's Facebook page, they indicated the last time they heard from Tony was when he texted them on January 6, 2020. The neighbors hadn't seen anything suspicious either. Like a lot of families in celebration, the Totes live part-time in Connecticut. So they could have been there over Christmas visiting family or they could have been away on holiday somewhere else. On January 13th, three special agents for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General arrived at the home. They did surveillance from the outside. According to media reports, the house was completely black. All the blinds, all the shutters were shut. Then they saw Tony walk out and sit on the porch. These porches were specially built by the town founders, by the way, to encourage neighbors to have lemonade socials and hang out with each other. But on that day, Tony was all by himself. The agents observed that he seemed to be kind of shaky and unsteady on his feet. So after he walked back inside the house, federal agents and Osceola County deputies knocked on the door. When they didn't get an answer, they entered the property. When they walked inside, the house was eerily quiet. They heard some mumbling and then Tony walked down wearing just a t-shirt and underwear. He seemed confused and was holding onto the railing of the stairway the entire time. They asked about his wife, Megan. He said that she was sleeping upstairs. Then, they asked about the kids. One of the special agents would say afterward that, at that point, Tony said something like, Oh, I don't know. I can't remember if they went to a sleepover last night. Then investigators went upstairs, and that's when they found the bodies. There were three bodies in the master bedroom, who they would later say were as black as leather. They had been inside that house for weeks. They found Megan first. She was lying in the master bedroom in a blood covered bed with her four-year-old daughter, Zoe, wrapped in blankets at her feet. Four-year-old Zoe was so small that investigators say they almost missed her. The two boys, 13-year-old Alec and 11-year-old Tyler, were also wrapped in blankets, holding rosary beads on a mattress on the floor. The family dog, Breezy, was found nearby, also dead. Investigators later said that they believed that Tony had killed his family sometime after Christmas and had been living inside the house with the bodies of his wife, three children, and the family dog for weeks. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. The story about a family massacre and mummified bodies being found in a picturesque house just minutes from Disney World shocked the world. I've gotta say, I've been doing this job for a long time. I've read about thousands of cases and not many cases give me nightmares, but this is definitely one of them. Looking at the captions next to the pictures that were taken just days before these murders is absolutely heartbreaking there are pictures of Alexander and Tyler posing with certificates of achievement after performing at the holiday concert. Those two boys are smiling and proudly holding their certificates, and then the youngest daughter, Zoe, is at a pageant dressed up as a baby elephant. There's just no hint of the horror that's going to come. When the story broke, the world's attention was focused on the small town where Walt Disney spent $4 billion custom building a fantasy town in the 1990s. It started back in 1995, when the Walt Disney Company hosted a lottery where thousands of people turned in deposits of $1,000 each for a chance to be a homeowner in Celebration. Celebration was a big deal back in the 90s. According to the Mirror newspaper, the original sales brochure wrote, there once was a place where neighbors greeted neighbors in the quiet of summer twilight, where children chased fireflies, and porch swings provided easy refuge from the cares of the day. The movie house showed cartoons on Saturday. The grocery store delivered. And there was one teacher who always knew you had that special something. Remember that place? It sounded absolutely perfect, but of course, the reality was far different. First of all, the local public school ended up being very progressive, and at first, they mixed different grades together. They received a lot of criticism for their teaching methods, Back then, I remember reading that residents had to agree to follow a strict set of rules to live there. The rule book was something like 160 pages in all. And it had things like, homes can only be painted in one of four approved pastel colors. No house can have more than two cars on the street. And the blinds or curtains had to be white on the outside and they had to be the exact approved shade of white. This is a place where people get into trouble because their grass is too long or they have pink flamingos in their yard. So a mass murder just absolutely shocked the town. The population there is pretty homogenous. There are just over 9,000 residents in celebration. The town's median age is 41.3 years old. So it's a lot of couples with young families or second homes in Florida. It's mostly white and skews pretty conservative. The median income is around $83,000. Home values are around $400,000. A lot of people who moved down here love the fact that the whole town is walkable, which is definitely not the case in a lot of the state of Florida. Anyway, by 2003, Disney had sold the town to a private equity firm. They don't actually own Celebration anymore, but their influence can still be felt throughout the town. These were only the second high-profile murders in the town ever. The first murder in Celebration happened in 2010, and it was big news back then. In November 2010... A 58-year-old man named Matteo Giovandito, who lived alone with his chihuahua, Lucy, was strangled with a shoelace and bludgeoned to death with an ax. A 30-year-old man, who was homeless at the time, was arrested, convicted, and received a life sentence for this murder. I remember at the time, media reports made a point of calling the murder suspect a transient. So the implication is, he was a bad person. He wasn't from there. Then he told police that Mateo had tried to sexually assault him. At that point, he lost control, became enraged, and attacked and killed him. Now, true crime fans know that this is sometimes a story that's told to get more sympathy from a potential defendant. But in this case, it may have been true. Because after the murder, some of Mateo's former students came forward and claimed that he had molested them after inviting them to sleepovers at his house so much for the theory that nothing bad can happen in celebration. Police were doing forensic testing on the bodies of Alexander, Tyler, Zoe, and Megan Tote. Testing confirmed that the bodies had been inside that house with Tony, rotting for at least two weeks. Investigators were working on the theory that the killings probably happened sometime in late December. And in trying to piece together this timeline, they talked to Tony and Megan's family members In the days leading up to Christmas, Tony had told Megan's aunt, Cindy Kopko, not to worry if she didn't hear from the family for a little while. He said the couple and the kids were going on a trip to St. Augustine, Florida, and wouldn't be reachable. He told other people around that time that Megan had lost her phone. Now, Cindy Kopko told the Hartford Current that Tony had lied, and she now wonders if the texts she got from Megan were really sent by Tony, that he'd sent them after Megan was dead. The holidays are coming up, which means that we're leaving home and traveling more often and that we're also sending a lot of gifts. But it's also the time of year when property crimes like burglaries and package theft spike. That's why there is no better time than now to invest in Safe. This week, Safe are giving red-collar listeners 40% off their award-winning home security system. We love SimpliSafe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. It was even named Best Home Security Systems of 2021 by U.S. News and World Report. You can easily customize a system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations from SimpliSafe. These are SimplySafe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. There are no long-term contracts or commitments. It's a really easy way to start feeling a bit more peace of mind. This offer ends soon. Take 40% off at simplysafecom redcollar today. Go to simplysafe.com redcollar. While this drama was unfolding, while Tony was getting taken out by the police in handcuffs, he told the police that he had tried to take his own life. He said that he took a lot of Benadryl to try to kill himself. However, doctors examined him at the hospital, and he ended up being fine. The sheriff at the time, Russ Gibson, said, Anthony has cooperated with the investigation, and he confessed to killing wife Megan Tote and their three children. Anthony also killed their family dog, Breezy. Now, at this point, police have their suspect in custody, but everyone, the police, press, and family are wondering What could have caused a seemingly normal family man to snap like that and murder his wife and three children? Tony was a physical therapist who worked in Connecticut, but the family had a second home in celebration. They plastered pictures on Facebook that appear to show a happy family. One from Christmas has Megan and the three kids in matching sweaters with Tony smiling beside them. According to public records, The family had purchased the house in Colchester, Connecticut in 2006. So of course reporters went up to Colchester and people there told them that Tony was very well respected and considered to be a good physical therapist. Everyone really seemed to like the family. According to her online profile, Megan was from Connecticut originally. She went to school at Sacred Heart University, the same school Tony went to. Megan also had a license to practice physical therapy in Connecticut. She was listed as an owner of the company Family Physical Therapy on LinkedIn, the name of Tony's company. But friends and family say that her primary job was being a mom. She stayed at home, did things like crafting and cooking from scratch, and was completely devoted to her kids. She homeschooled all of them. Tony was involved in a lot of activities in Colchester. He coached soccer, and actually in his clinic treated a lot of student athletes as a physical therapist. The New Haven Register talked about a photo that was posted of Tony and his family in 2016 and a comment on that photo that appeared to have been written by him, one that read, I am truly just blessed beyond words. The New Haven Register also interviewed someone who said that she went to Sacred Heart University with Tony and Megan. She said that they were high school sweethearts and said that Megan seemed to be kind-hearted and happy. She said, quote, She was the type of person who had it all, yet was humble. Tony was a residential advisor for the townhouses I lived in, and he was always there to offer help or advice to all the residents with roommate conflicts, what have you. He was just an all-around people person. They adored each other, end quote. So Tony's routine was that he would work in Connecticut at his physical therapy practice, Family Physical Therapy, in Colchester from Monday to Friday. Then, on the weekends he would fly down to Florida to spend time with his family. The autopsies of Megan and the kids showed that the family were killed by unspecified violence, combined with overdoses of Benadryl. In Megan's autopsy notes, the medical examiner wrote, based upon the circumstances as currently known, the autopsy findings with toxicology analysis, the cause of death was homicidal violence of unspecified means in association with diphenhydramine toxicity. They had also all been stabbed. Alex and Tyler each had a single stab wound to the stomach, while Megan had two stab wounds to her lower stomach. Investigators believed all three of them, Megan, Alex, and Tyler, had been poisoned with Benadryl. The mystery was Tony and Megan's four-year-old daughter, Zoe. The toxicology report did show a non-fatal amount of Benadryl in her system but she had no other visible injuries. Still, the bodies had been inside that home for a long time, so long that investigators weren't able to use blood for toxicology tests. Instead, forensic investigators used a hair sample. They found that the liver, brain, and chest fluid also tested positive for the chemical found in Benadryl. So the cause of death seemed relatively straightforward, and they had their suspects in custody. Now detectives had to figure out why this happened To do that, they started taking a closer look into Tony and Megan's finances. On the surface, Tony and his family seemed to be living the American dream. They had three beautiful kids, a thriving therapy practice, and two homes. Tony's physical therapy practice in Colchester was called Family Practice Therapy. It's also listed in business records as Performance Edge Sports, LLC. He had two locations in Colchester. But behind all the glowing reviews for his physical therapy, the truth was that Tony's finances were falling apart. He had recently been through bankruptcy proceedings and had listed $1,500 in assets and $200,000 in debt. And the reality was even worse. According to the Hartford Current, around Thanksgiving, one of Tony's locations closed suddenly. Patients would go for their appointments and they found a sign on the door saying that he was away the whole thing was very abrupt. When his physical therapy license expired in September 2019, Tony failed to renew it. Still, during that fall, Tony did maintain his facade. One of his longtime patients talked to News Channel Fox 61 after the murders. He said the last time that he saw Tony for physical therapy, which was right before he and his family permanently moved to Florida, he was less talkative than usual like something could be wrong, but he said he could have never imagined that Tony's troubles would lead to anything like this. Tony and his family were leasing the home in celebration, but according to court documents, eviction proceedings involving their Florida home had already started as well. On December 26th, right after Christmas, there was an eviction notice filed in a Florida court for the Tote family home in celebration. According to the documents, the Totes had signed a one-year lease in May 2019, but they had missed their December payment of more than $4,000. HHS Special Agent Jeffrey Anderson said that the Inspector General and the FBI had been investigating Tony since April 2019. He said that they had been investigating allegations that Tote and Family Physical Therapy are engaged in a health care fraud scheme involving the submission of fraudulent claims for physical therapy sessions to the Connecticut Medicaid program and to private health insurance plans, including Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, for physical therapy services that were not in fact rendered to patients. So in short, Tony would bill Medicaid for tens of thousands of dollars worth of appointments that never took place. He also allegedly took the money that he got from those fake appointments and used it to borrow more money he took out a series of more than 20 short-term, high-interest loans, according to a federal affidavit. And investigators say that right after they arrested Tony, he admitted that he had committed fraud. The affidavit read, in part, Tote stated that he kept having to bill for services that were not rendered to keep pace with the personal loans that he took out. When asked if he was living above his means, Tote replied, that's the best way to put it. When the agents asked Tote if his wife, Megan, knew about his fraudulent billing practices, Tote responded, no, only me. So whether his patients were covered by Medicaid or private insurance, Tony would bill them for appointments they never had, or sometimes he would add extra appointments. Sometimes they would have existing appointments with him, but if they had, say, two per week, Tony would bill insurance for five, and he would keep billing people even after he was no longer treating them. Investigators say that they found evidence that indicated to them that Tony's frauds could have been going back as far as 2015. But they really started cranking out their investigation in 2019. They talked to his patients, and a lot of them ended up cooperating with the investigators. Some patients said they now lived out of state, and they hadn't seen Tony in a long time, yet their insurance was still getting billed. So in August 2019, investigators conducted surveillance at both of Tony's office locations in Connecticut. On that day, both of those locations were closed, but Tony billed for 16 patients. He actually billed for 36 hours that day. I'm not sure how that's supposed to work in a 24-hour day, how you're able to provide 36 hours of therapy, but he did it. On top of the federal investigation, creditors were suing Tony. Three of them had just won judgments against him for over $500,000. His practice leased office space and they stopped making payments in 2018. So by the time he left for Florida, he had his landlord, his commercial landlord, suing him for more than $15,000 in damages. Federal investigators finally confronted Tony with evidence of this fraud, which they alleged dated back to 2015. He initially denied the accusations. Federal investigators finally searched Tony's business and they confronted him with the evidence of his fraud, which they said dated back to 2015. Initially, he denied everything, according to the unsealed affidavit. But then he did admit to adding stuff to patient billing. Then investigators say that he cut off all contact with them. He told them that he was getting an attorney, but then they never heard from him again. Still, investigators were closing in on Tony. When they got to the Colchester office on January 7th, They found a notice to quit possession because of failure to pay $6,000 in back rent for December and January. By then, Tony had gone to Florida, but his financial troubles followed him. Meanwhile, in Osceola County, a lawsuit was filed against Tony and Megan, which alleged they had failed to pay rent on the reserved place home. They owed more than $5,000. They were about to be officially evicted. Two days after the bodies of Tony's family were found, Russ Gibson told reporters that Tony had confessed to the killings. But then there was confusion about whether or not he had actually indicated that he was guilty of the murders. He was charged with four counts of first-degree murder for the killings of his wife and children, and one count of animal cruelty for killing the dog. But while he was behind bars at the Osceola County Sheriff's Department, just a few weeks later, Tony had a change of heart. In a phone conversation with his sister, And in a letter to his father, Robert Tope, Tony said that he was missing weeks of memory around the time of the killings. According to the Orlando Sentinel, he said he wasn't even there at the time of the murders. He blamed someone else. He was blaming the brutal murders of his three children and the dog on someone else, Megan, his wife. I have no idea what I told investigators, Tony said on the call to his sister. Just know that I will protect Megan's dignity until the very end. Now he said that he wasn't even in the house on the night of the killings. He said that Megan had killed the kids by giving them a pie laced with Benadryl. Then he said she stabbed her sons and then stabbed herself. He seemed to suggest that Megan had been the one who was mentally unstable. Osceola County State Attorney's Office has released some information about the murders, including a 27-page letter from Tony to his father, Robert Toad, and phone calls from jail between Tony and his sister, Chrissy Caplet. Now, this case has not gone to trial yet. It's been delayed largely due to COVID, and everyone mentioned on this podcast is innocent until proven guilty. And on that note, the sheriff's office told The Day that it will not put out any more information about this case before the trial. They don't want to jeopardize a possible conviction. But according to the audio that they have released, Tony told his sister, I don't remember anything over Christmas and pretty much the first week I got here. I don't remember coming here. I don't remember anything. Tony wrote that on the night of the murders, he was somewhere else. He said that he had been taking care of some errands at a property the family owned at 211 Longview Avenue. He said he was looking for a Mickey Mouse necklace for his daughter and ended up falling asleep. When he got home, he said, his children were dead and his wife stabbed herself in front of him. He said that behind the scenes, tensions had been growing between him and Megan. He said that his wife had cut him off from family and that she wasn't supportive of his medical conditions. He said that he had been sick and passed out due to medical conditions which he claimed included low blood sugar, thyroid issues, hypertension, and possibly low testosterone. He said that he told his wife that he needed to go to the doctor, saying, I looked at Megan like, can I go to the doctor now? We're trying all these things here. I need to find out what's going on. Tony also suggested that this wasn't the first time that Megan may have tried to kill the kids before. And at this point, Reporters picked up on the fact that there was another really weird family connection here, one that caused a lot of experts to comment on theories that psychopathy could be inherited. It turns out that Tony's father, Robert Tote, who he wrote the letter to from prison, was convicted of attempting to murder Tony's mother in 1980, and four-year-old Tony saw the whole thing. At the time, according to court records, Robert was a special education teacher and a wrestling coach at a local high school in Pennsylvania. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Tony told police that he woke up and heard his mother screaming. When he walked into the hallway, the article read, quote, a black man with a T carved on his forehead, picked the boy up and put him back in bed, end quote. Tony told officers that he saw another man who he said had been wrestling with his mom on the bed. Loretta Tote, Tony's mom, was shot in the face that night. She survived the attack, but lost an eye. Robert Tote was convicted of hiring a hitman, a former student of his who had a learning disability, to shoot his wife. Robert was sent to prison. Even after the attack, for a while, Loretta and the kids lived with Robert. Loretta eventually filed for divorce in 1981, and according to the newspaper, moved Anthony to another bedroom in hopes of stopping the nightmares. The former student testified against Robert as part of a deal with prosecutors and was sentenced to four years for the attempted murder. Robert was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 10 to 20 years, but that sentence was later reduced. Today, Robert has been released from prison and according to heavy.com, he's in touch with a lot of his family members and he has not been shy about speaking out when it comes to Tony's case. Not surprisingly, Tony and Robert were estranged for many years, but they reconnected after Tony grew up. In Robert's interview, he admitted that he had an affair and left his family vulnerable on the night in question, but he still denies hiring the hitman. In the interview, Robert was sympathetic to his son and said that he believed Tony's version of events. And Tony's letter to Robert described how he watched in horror as his wife killed the children and the dog. The letter read in part, I offer you forgiveness for not being there to protect us that night, March 19th, 1980. Although we were both not there on our respective nights in question for different reasons, I cannot forgive myself if I don't first forgive you. He wrote, long story short, she gave them the Benadryl Tylenol PM pie, separated them, woke up at 1130, stabbed them, and then suffocated each one. At the news of this, I ran into the bathroom and puked. I was weak. He claimed that he was the victim. Everyone else was persecuting him. He accused the sheriff's office of wanting to score a big win with his arrest. He wrote that he is 10,000% innocent of all these preposterous charges. And he blamed the media, calling the press the creative writing machine. Now he was saying, that his work had suffered because his wife had different types of sicknesses, including depression and Lyme disease. He was traveling back and forth from Florida to care for her. So he said that it was his wife's illnesses and his desire to protect his kids, not the financial black hole that he was in and the fact that his landlord and the feds were breathing down his neck. Those were the reasons for the abrupt departure to Celebration. In November 2019, right after authorities reached out to him, he moved to Florida full-time. In the letter to his father, Tony said that he went to the nearby condo the family owned to do some work. He said he meant to stay the night there, but ended up sleeping in his van. He said he returned the next morning to find Megan at the top of the stairs, saying she had murdered their children before she also killed herself. He said he then moved all four bodies to an upstairs bedroom, placed them in comfortable sleeping positions, and covered them with blankets for warmth and protection he put rosary beads in the boy's hands. He said that he tried to take his own life at that point, but that he wasn't able to go through with it. He called it, quote, "...yet another thing that I sucked at." End quote. Since the killings, he said that he'd basically lost all his memory, living in kind of a fugue state. Now, there hasn't been much research done about family annihilators in general, mainly because, thankfully, it's a rare crime around 23 cases per year. The Hartford Current interviewed three different forensic experts, who basically said that Tony didn't fit the pattern of family annihilators. But as we've seen with a lot of white-collar and red-collar cases, I think it's time to create some new categories for these guys, because in a lot of ways, Tony's case is reminiscent of the Chris Watts case. The paper interviewed Professor Michelle Gallietta, a forensic psychologist at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She said that Tony didn't fit the profile because he didn't kill himself after killing his family, and because he had a clean criminal history, charm, social skills, and didn't seem to have the capacity for extreme violence. She said Tony appeared to have traits that are frequently seen in white-collar criminals. An article in Wired had more insight. I stayed up really late one night reading about family annihilators, because these cases are just, they're the stuff of nightmares. An article in Wired by Katie Collins had more insight. They quoted a study that analyzed three decades of criminal reports of British murder cases. One of the paper's three authors was Professor David Wilson, director of the Center of Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. They wrote a paper published in the Howard Journal of Criminal Justice, and this paper found that the most common trigger of familicide is the family breaking up, followed by financial trouble, honor killings, and mental illness. So, they have four categories. The first category is what they call the self-righteous killers. Basically, these are the guys who have a belief that the mother is somehow responsible for destroying the family. These are the ones who call their partners and say they're about to kill their children before killing themselves. Then, there are what experts call the disappointed killers. These killings are brought on by a sense of shame caused by something the kids did. Honor killings fit into this category. Then there are the paranoid killers... These are the ones who really are detached from reality. They're often motivated by a desire to protect their family from a perceived threat. So, for example, they imagine that satanic forces are out to get the kids and they have to kill them to protect them. Finally, there are the Anomic Killers. These are the guys who see the family as a symbol of their own economic success. So if they can't keep up the front, they have a bankruptcy or lose their job, the family is no longer an asset. They don't serve the killer's purposes anymore so they kill them before they lose everything. In a really sick way, it reminds me of how some people will destroy a car before the bank comes to repossess it. Tony seems to fit into this category. According to friends and family, there had been no signs there was any trouble in his marriage. He didn't have a history of jealousy or controlling behavior. There were no protective orders. There was no history of domestic violence. In fact, no one who reporters talked to disliked Tony or any of the family at all. The Connecticut posted an interview with Dr. Neil Websdale, director of the National Domestic Violence Fatality Review Initiative. He told the newspaper, "Quote: Roughly a quarter to a third of family annihilation cases appear to have financial problems at their root. Often, what we see here is a deep sense of male shame." End quote. They talked to a forensic psychologist named Angie Barrell. He basically said that people who commit these types of crimes have very distorted thinking. On the surface, they seem to be completely normal, but under the surface, they're desperate. Tony definitely appeared to fit into this category. He owed money on 20 loans with super high interest rates that were all coming due. He was being sued in court for tens of thousands of dollars by his landlord. And he had acknowledged committing major Medicaid fraud in his physical therapy practice, according to business records. By the way, Megan's family has said that there is absolutely no evidence that Megan ever had any history of harming her kids. They say these claims by Tony are ridiculous, that she would never do anything like that. She loved being a mother more than anything in the world, and she was absolutely devoted to her children. In fact, her friends believe she would have died to protect them, and that's what they believe happened. Police believe the same thing. Investigators say they think that Tony drugged all four family members with Benadryl before stabbing them to death. Though they don't know for sure, they believe that Zoe may have been suffocated, given the absence of any cuts or markings on her body. And as with so many red-collar crimes, the trigger was the threat of discovery. Because until the Christmas holidays, Tony had managed to keep all of this from his wife. Even though the federal agents had been to his office, he told investigators that his wife, Megan, didn't know about the lenders or the creditors or the lawsuits. There's no evidence that prior to Christmas, his wife had any idea what was going on. And when there was too much heat in Colchester, Connecticut, Tony went to Florida. But he had to have known that eventually, the agents were going to come knocking on the door and his whole world would crumble. And since the kids and his wife didn't exist, except as an extension of him and a reflection of his financial success, they had to go. Because Megan lived in Celebration, Florida with the children and they were homeschooled, He really was able to keep this scam going for a long time. But then the Connecticut therapist license expired and he didn't renew it. The agents came to his door, the lawsuits were piling up, and investigators believe that the loss of control finally put him over the edge. All of the events that happened before Christmas were things that he could keep secret. This wasn't a huge fraud case or embezzlement case that made headlines. So this whole time his wife was out Christmas shopping for the kids, She had no idea what was really going on. The idea that Megan was taking pictures with her kids before Christmas, Tony posted a Christmas card of him and a Santa doll from his office just a few days before the holidays with no idea of the horror that was about to come is something that will probably keep a lot of friends and family awake nights for a long time. Tony is set to go to trial in September of 2021, Meanwhile, vigils have been held in Colchester in celebration. Friends and neighbors try to process their shock. The condominium that the totes owned on Longview Avenue, where Tony says he went the night of the murders, is still under his name, according to property records. But a lawsuit seeking to foreclose is ongoing. In January 2021, RMS Ayala, the former state's attorney, announced that her office would no longer be seeking the death penalty in Tony's case. She said that it was not in the best interest of the state, according to court records. She said the decision was a result of the consideration of the facts and law applicable to this case, and to serious concerns regarding the mental health of the defendant. Meanwhile, Tony's friends and family are left wondering if they ever really knew him at all, if the loving father and hard worker they had known for years ever really existed a former friend of Tony's who said he'd known him for years kind of summed everything up in a Reddit thread. He said at first he told himself that Tony couldn't have done that. First, he wrote, he told himself that it could have been a robbery gone wrong or a carbon monoxide poisoning. Even after Tony was arrested, the friend said he told himself that he loved his kids. There's no way he did anything to the kids. After the arrest, he thought maybe it was some kind of setup. After all, they always look at the father, right? After the evidence came out, the friend wrote, I keep hoping they'll say something like, oh, he was a schizophrenic. He was on bath salts. He had a psychotic break. I think it's because it distances him from the crime. And for some reason, that makes me feel a tiny bit better about it. I keep reading people say that he should get the death penalty. My first instinct is to defend him because of who I, well, thought he was. And then... I remember. Red Collar is an audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?